12 easy installments of $1. <laughs> RF can be taken out of your paycheck. We could put a line item, a dollar, <laughs> for each pay period. And, you know, you could be paying RUF for a whole year. Um, so, just saying. Finally, look at the write-up of the ministry team if you're interested. I need to know by... Uh, the end of tomorrow, I'm trying to put together the ministry team for next fall. Ministry team assumes that you've been around or you have for a while. It assumes you believe in Jesus. Uh, it also assumes that you're willing to commit some extra time and some extra energy in learning how to minister and to do ministry. So come talk to me if you're interested at all. Uh, and this is really exciting. Okay, we have we have one spot for our summer conference, one male spot. Okay. We had someone withdraw. Uh, we had someone withdraw. There's still scholarship money available for that one spot. So it's going to be first come, first serve. You need to come talk to me. It's not going to be a race to me. Okay? So don't get into like, the starting position the whole time when I'm talking, going, when is he going to shut up so I can go get my spot? Um, look, just talk to me as soon as you can about summer you have in our summer conference. And... We'd love to get you involved. We want to do a substitution for the person that dropped out and put another person in. It's got to be a guy because of sleeping arrangements at Laguna Beach. So that's why. So ladies, don't feel discriminated. If a lady drops out, the same thing will apply. Okay. So if you know someone or you are interested, let me know. All right. That's all I have to say on the announcement side. Let's look at the Bible for a second. Here we are, large group, this is what we do, Tuesday nights, this is the last one of the semester, and we're going to finish the book of Colossians. We've been looking at the letter of Paul to the Colossians for the whole semester. We've been kind of marching through it, and I've been trying to connect these different weeks together with a title. My best attempt at a title has been, what if enough was actually enough? What if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really needed and wanted anyway. That's been our title. That's what we've been trying to get at uh, from start to finish. Um, and we've been trying to, uh, to talk about that. And so we're thinking about what if Jesus is enough and how would that change the way that we live? And that's really what Colossians and Paul's at pains to do in Colossians. So let me remind you where we've been before we go to chapter 4, which is what we're going to look at today. And a lot of it, by the way, because I took forever to get through uh, Love is a Perfect Dance, part one and two, which was really like Sid dealing with submission, spanking, and slavery. Okay, so that's what we were doing for several weeks. Um, and I, I had to give you these, these incredible defenses that some of you just yawned through and some of you were, were eating up. So we're like, we've got like 100 verses today. I'll do the best I can. But let me catch you up. Uh, Colossians is really a book that Paul, uh, a follower of Jesus, um, is writing to Colossa in modern Turkey. And he's doing some introductions in chapter 1. He's introducing the gospel. That's the central message of Christianity. We're talking a lot about that today. Like we talk about it in most large groups, if not every large group. And that is that who Jesus really was and is, and also what Jesus has really done for us. And then chapter 2, verse 6, we start to look at, Paul makes this giant discussion, this giant argument about what the Christian life, what the gospel center life really actually looks like. And he does it by contrast and comparison. He does, chapter 2, he says, this is what it does not look like. It does not look like fake religion. And then in chapter 3, he says, this is what it does look like. It looks like true humanity. It looks like true love. And then in chapter 4, where we are now, we continue this positive description about how to live. And look, if 
if you read if you read ahead, I don't know if you have, and you looked at the bulletin or you looked at your Bible, you're so excited about RUF that you just couldn't sleep last night. And one in the morning, you flipped on your light and you looked at your roommate, and you read chapter four. You'll realize it feels like a bunch of mashed up commands of people, like Paul's name dropping and he's talking about all this random stuff. Uh, but really, what Paul is actually doing is encouraging us what the Christian life looks like, and what he's doing is he's telling us that. To have a full life, we need to live out of the fullness of Christ. To have a full life, we need to live out of the fullness of Christ. And that's really what he's talking about in this chapter. And that's going to be what we're going to talk about over and over again. But, um, so the last time of the semester, would you open your Bibles to Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. If you have a Bible, if you don't, look at your blue sheet. It's on the right-hand side and the inside. And you want to stand for the reading of Scripture. That would be great. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Again, I told you I'm going to do some incredible catch-up work for our last week. Uh, submission, spanking, and slavery. God. Got me way late. So let's look at this. Uh, this is the words, words of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open us a, a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, a kind of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how it ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may also know how you ought to answer each person. This is where the names start. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him... Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision that is Jews among the fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me while I was in prison. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf, in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as his Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are more, uh, they are more sweet, they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we do thank you for your words. Uh, we thank you for their preciousness, for their sweetness, and I pray that you give us ears to hear that. Um, give us hearts to believe that. I pray, Father, that you would help us to dig deep on this Tuesday night. Um, I pray, Father, that you would give us the willingness to go there, uh, to wrestle with your scripture, to hear what it says to us, to try to look at our lives in the light of it, to stand underneath it, to sit at Jesus' feet, to gaze in wonder. I pray, Father, that your spirit would fill us, that we would know what it's like to live well, to live fully in the fullness of Jesus. And I pray that you would be 
with this time that you've set it apart, and that you teach us how to sing your praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. So, in this book, The Life of Pi, the near Pi, um, is a young man in India who grows up as a zookeeper's son. I don't know if you guys have read this book. Uh, some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. Well, there's, this, there's actually this occasion pretty early in the book. Uh, most of it's a survival story, but early in the book, Pi is on family vacation, and I, I have to look this up, Manar, India. And he's a Hindu, Pi is a Hindu, but he actually gets very intrigued by this church. And he goes and sort of like creeps around and investigates. And he runs into the, into the priest of the church named Father Martin. And Pi and Father Martin have this conversation. They sit down and have tea and biscuits. And between nibbling and sipping, uh, Pi asks Father Martin, what is Christianity? What is Christianity? And this is what Father Martin tells Pi. He tells him a story. He tells him the gospel story of Christianity. And this is how Pi describes it. It was Jesus stripped, naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified. And at the hands of mere humans, to boot. Okay? Pi responds to the story like any well-meaning Hindu lad. He responds in disbelief. He can't believe it. And he even tries to imagine the scenario in his life. Remember, he's a zookeeper's son. So he imagines this scene in his zoo where his father tells him about a bunch of lions that escape the cage and they go on this rampage and they kill the llamas and they kill the birds and the camels and all sorts of other things, other animals I don't really know what they are. And basically, the father confronts Pi and says, this situation has become intolerable. Something must be done. I've decided that the only way the lions can atone for their sins is if I feed you to the lions. That's how Pi understands the gospel. He thinks, okay, God, who's a human being, is asking his son to go be fed to other human beings. Okay, that's his understanding. Um, that's how the gospel sounds to this young Hindu guy. And he, and he actually says this. He says, it's a downright weird story. And he says, it's a peculiar psychology of the people who first started speaking this story. And so Pi asks for another more satisfying story. He says, Father Martin, there's got to be something else in your religious bag. There's plenty of stories for every religion. You've got to tell us, tell me something new, something different, something I can wrap my mind around better. But Father Martin tells Pi this, the stories that came before the gospel story, and there were many, these stories were simply prologues to the story of the gospel. And he says this, Christianity has one story, and to it we come back again and again, and over and over. It is story enough for us. So listen to that again. Christianity has one story, and to it we come back again and again, and over and over. It is story enough to us and for us. And look, Father Martin's right. He's right. One story is enough for us. We don't believe it. But this is really what Paul has been at pains to tell us in the entire letter to the Colossians. He's been saying, one story is enough for you. He's been doing this especially in this passage. It's a flash of lightning across the passage. Over and over again, you'll see one story is enough. One story is enough. The gospel story is enough. He says this 
to us, to his audience, the Colossians, just like us, who find it hard to believe, hard to understand, to wrestle with, a weird, peculiar psychological story like the gospel. But God's grace, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's a story enough. We don't need another story. We don't need in our boredom and our craving, we don't need another story. There simply just isn't one that can match it. And look, this story is not just enough for the Colossians. I think some of us would say, okay, Paul's talking to the Colossians, that's great. It's a story also enough for us. Because look at verse 16 really briefly, okay? He's saying, look, the gospel story is not just for Laodicea, or sorry, for not just for Colossus, it's for Laodicea. And by extension, it's not just for Laodicea, it's for New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico. This story is for everyone. This story is not for everyone. Okay? Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18, Paul speaks into our doubts, into our boredom, with this story. And he says, look, there's nothing better. He speaks against our desires for more stories, for something more satisfying. And he says this. He tells us the truth. Everything is all about one story. And that one story is all about Jesus. Therefore, pray for Jesus, speak about Jesus' story, and act out of Jesus' story. So he's saying, look, everything that ever was and ever will be and ever is, is about one story. It's a huge claim. And he's saying, that story is all about Jesus, and that changes the way that we live. All of a sudden, we're praying for Jesus' story. All of a sudden, we're speaking about Jesus' story. All of a sudden, we're living out of Jesus' story. And that's exactly what this, this, these past, this passage does. All these verses are talking about that thing. Three areas of, life, of our lives are connected to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul is at pains to tell us. First, verses 2 through 4, we see we pray for Jesus' story. Verses 5 through 6, we speak about Jesus' story. Verses 7 through 18, we're shown that we live out of Jesus' story. So, you see, Paul's telling us, God through Paul's telling us two things and showing us one other thing. How to pray to God, verses 2 through 4. How to speak about what you believe, verses 5 through 6. And how to act towards other people, verses 7 through 18. Are we tracking? All right. Let's look at the, let's look at verses 2 through 4. Praying. How to pray. This is very practical, Paul, by the way. Verses 2 through 4, Paul tells us how to pray. And he says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving. There is a ton here. I could talk about prayer for weeks, and just these two verses about it. But I think Paul's highlighting two things. He's following two emphases about prayer. First, prayer is constant and watchful. Prayer is constant and watchful. We're to pray without ceasing. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians. And just, and it's not just prayer, it's not just about when you wake up or when you go to bed. It's a lifestyle, it's something that we do all of the time. Now, here's a really good question that I feel like we don't ask enough. Ready? What does that look like? What does it look like to constantly pray? What does it look like to pray without ceasing? And I believe that commentator Ken Hughes gets it right on. He, he puts it best, what it looks like, what constant prayer looks like. He says this, it's not so much speaking words, as a posture of the heart. 
It's not so much a speaking of words, the posture of the heart. Do you get that? Constantly praying is very, very difficult to do with just words, right? We're in life. We're talking to people. We're in life. People are talking to us. It's hard to continue to have a monologue inside. He's talking about it's a posture of your heart. It's a posture of reminding our hearts, refreshing our souls with one story over and over again. Jesus has lived for us. Jesus has died for us. Jesus has resurrected for us. And what does that mean? We can finally be honest about our failures and pick ourselves up in Jesus' grace and start again fresh. All of the time that narrative is going on. And this praying constant reminder looks like practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence puts it really well. It's a classic, okay? The practice of the presence of God. And he says this, The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees. It's a beautiful expression. He's saying, look, I'm a short order chef in a monastery. And people are yelling for dishes. And I feel the same peace that I feel when I'm praying at my bedside. That's amazing. And we have to understand, this is exactly why it's a heart attitude versus a bunch of words. Okay, When we're talking about constant prayer, in this case. How else are we supposed to pray in life's clatter? In life's constant noise? but with the posture of our heart. All right, second, Paul stresses that prayer ends in thankfulness. Okay, that's still, we're still in verse two here. Paul's implying a process of prayer. We ask for things for ourselves and for others, and then we expect those things to happen. Okay? And then when they do happen, we thank God for them. That's the process that he's explaining there. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. This is why, by the way, and this is hopefully practical for you, is that you maybe think about, if you don't do this already, writing down your prayers. And then writing down when they happen, when they're answered. Why is that effective? Why is it effective to have a front row seat to what God is doing in your life? Because in your doubts about prayer, in my doubts about prayer, we can go back and look in that, in that notebook. I have a friend named Phil Hissom, he calls it the, the Mighty Acts of God in the Hissom Household. That's his, that's his notebook. But <laughs> it's, it's true in a lot of ways. Um, and he, you can look at that and you can sit there and see God has been faithful. He's answered my prayers. And you can look at the prayers that he hasn't answered and you can continue to pray them. And the reason that we can be faithful in writing these prayers down and expecting them to be answered and thanking God for them is because of the gospel story. Do you get that? The gospel story tells us this, that God gave his only begotten son for his children, for those who believe. He gave everything, everything, when we had nothing. So what's a parking space? What's an exam? What's a sense of peace when compared to that ultimate sacrifice? So hopefully you're seeing just like how practical this is. Okay, how practical Paul is trying to be. He's telling us how to pray, but he also is telling us what to pray for. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. He's telling us to pray for the gospel story to be told and to be received. 
pray also that God may open up the door for the open up, up to us a door for the word of God. Verse three. We need to pray because God's got to work. We have to, he has to open up doors, places so that we can talk about what we hold most sacred and dear. He's got to open up people's hearts and minds so they can hear the story, so that we can hear the story again and again and again. But look at verses 5 and 6. What does Paul tell us to do there? He's not telling us to pray, he's telling us to speak. Do you get that? What's going on there? He's saying, pray, 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 and then he says, tell the gospel story. Which is it? Prayer or telling? God's work or our work? Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Philosophy class, English lit class. Whatever you always talk about every time you talk about Paradise Lost or the Iliad or whatever book you ever talk about, you always this always comes up. But let me tell you a story that I think just hammers this issue. And it's an amazing story because it's ridiculous. <laughs> so I went to a graduate school where I became a where like you were, I was trained to do this, trained to become a Christian minister. I know it seems amazing that I go to school for this. When you look at this, okay? But true, uh, I went to three years of school, graduate school for this, and I had a professor named Bruce Walkey. He's kind of a legend, and he was older. He was a little bit like demanding, but but amazingly gentle. He told this story in class one time that I think makes sense of this whole. Is it our work or God's work? Is it prayer or telling? And the story goes like this. He was playing with his adopted daughter. And, and because he's a Bible teacher, they were playing David and Goliath. Okay, that probably doesn't happen in every grad school. <laughs> but, I mean, reenacting David and Goliath. And I like to think of, you have to think of like a seven-year-old man playing Goliath. I think that's just really the mental image you have to have. And he acts it out. It's pretty intense. I can't do it. I can't do it justice. But Dr. Walkie's Goliath. His daughter is David. Dr. Walkie is talking about, he comes up to her, he challenges her as David, and then she's supposed to pray, say the prayer of David, and then take her uh, stone, which is a ping pong ball, and her sling, which is an athletic sock, and she's supposed to fling the ping pong ball at her dad, as Goliath. Okay? Again, she's like five or six, it's pretty adorable to think about, okay? But maybe, maybe Carol will be David and I'll be Goliath. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's a cute story. Thanks for that diversion from, like, incredible hard Hebrew grammar. And he's, he's sort of saying that story, but then he sort of says, look, every time she threw the ping pong ball, no matter if she missed or hit me, I fell down. But then he corrected himself. He said, I didn't always fall down. If she didn't pray, I didn't fall down. And then he had one moment where she, didn't, she just prayed and asked him to fall down. And he had to think about it, and he said, no, you didn't throw the ping pong ball, so I'm not falling down. Do you get the story here? Do you see what's going on here? He's saying, well, he's saying this. In order for Goliath to fall, David had to both pray and to fling the stone ping pong ball. Does that make sense? These are interlocking causes in the world. God must work through our prayers and through our words in order that the gospel story is received. This is not an either or, it's a both and. There are levels of cause here. Goliath does not fall unless we pray and unless we fling the ping pong ball. And this is exactly why Paul 
feels compelled to tell us why in verses 5 and 6 we should, we should, what we should say and how we should say it, okay? But before you get all excited and think, finally, the Bible is going to give me a formula, it's going to give me a technique that I can massage my relationships into exactly the form I want them to be, you're going to be disappointed. If you read verses 5 and 6, you'll see that it's not a set script to tell, to talk about your beliefs. It's not a set script for everyone and all of the time. Instead, verse 6 asks us to favor relationships, to treat individuals as individuals, to know how you ought to answer to each individual person, is the way that the scripture puts it. And this is what it means. God cares about our conversations with people who disagree. God cares about not just that we have the conversation, but he wants us to have good conversations. Do you get that? It's not just a check to talk about your faith. It's a check to talk about your faith with respect and love. As much as some Christians seem to favor it, God doesn't think that we should relate to people like plug and chug, find the formula mathematics. That's not how we relate to people. He wants us to care like he cares, deeply and intimately. He wants to care, uh, us to care enough, according to verse 5, to find the right time and the right place to talk about the essential things that make life worth living. To have the courage to ask hard questions and to give honest, personal answers in our friendships. To know and to be known well. That's what God's concerned about. I just All you have to do is look at the word answer in verse 6. This implies that we need to ground our speaking in our listening. Because answer implies that someone is asking us a question. Not just that we're talking at them. Let me give you a very personal example of why this all matters. So, a lot of you know this, but I didn't grow up Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I had no idea what Christianity was. I didn't even have Christian friends. Okay? I didn't really know that... Christians were anything outside of a stereotype. My impression of Christianity was a, a girl in my school got up and talked about how she had burned her secular CDs. That was my impression of Christianity. Okay, so that's where I was coming from. But I went to a college in the southeast, and there were some Christians there, and I became friends with some of them. Um, and I thought, okay, that's interesting. I don't really know anyone. This was a new experience for me. And I was hanging out one time in a Christian friend's dorm room, and he and another friend changed the course of the conversation suddenly. And all of a sudden, it became about Jesus. And they talked to me about Jesus. And they said, do you think he's a liar, a lunatic, or a lord? <laughs> and I said, what in the heck are you talking about? And they tried to explain it. If you're not familiar with this idea, by the way, basically, it looks at what Jesus says about himself. He says he's God, okay? In the scripture... And it gives three alternatives why Jesus would be able to say that. He says he's God, and it's either he says it's untrue, he says it because he knows it's untrue, and he's a liar, or he thinks it's true, but it's untrue, and he's a lunatic, or it's true, and he knows it's true, and he's the Lord. And it's a brilliant scheme, okay? I really buy it. But you have to understand, I didn't believe in the historical account of the Bible, so what Jesus said about himself didn't matter to me. And those people had not taken the time to listen to me about where I was coming from. So their words fell on deaf ears. 
There'd become a time later when I wouldn't come to believe the scriptures. Every time later in my college life where that would be a, a good argument. But in the meantime, I was frustrated and offended with this approach. I felt ambushed two against one and never really ever felt heard. It's only later, through a series of deep personal conversations with a Christian friend and roommate about his faith and my doubts, that I became a Christian. That's my story. And I think that's what Paul's speaking to. And again, Paul is not just speaking to me personally only, okay? It's just part of what he's trying to say. And all he's trying to say is, look, my college roommate spoke with salt. He was honest, and he was interesting about Jesus. And he made me thirst for rescue. And he was gracious. He was interested in hearing me out. And he was patient with my doubts. And he was patient with my concerns. And that made Jesus all the more compelling. And that attitude gracious is really what the whole passage is about. That's what this is all about. This is what the whole letter to the Colossians is about. It's grace. Grace is the power of the story that shapes our lives. It's the story I can't stop talking about. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of grace. 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 Grace is the gift that cost God everything. Grace is always and forever God, God's love that he showed us in Jesus. Grace is... It's not about being good at being good. Grace is not even about trying. It's about trusting in Jesus. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Grace is us punching God in the nose because we mostly don't like him, and Jesus giving us a billion dollars because he likes his son, Jesus. God is, grace is us punching God in the nose mostly because we don't like him. And God giving us a billion dollars because he likes his son, Jesus. It makes no sense. It's brilliant, it's beautiful, it's true. And this small little word, grace, means so very much to me, and so very much to Paul, and so very much to the Bible and to God. The letter of Colossians began with grace in chapter 1, verse 2, and it's ending with grace in chapter 4, verse 18. But Paul has been talking about this concept, even when he's not using the word, throughout the entire letter. Do you get that? It's been all about grace, and the Bible's all about grace. It's what we've been talking about all semester, and frankly, next semester and the semester after, and forevermore, Lord willing, RUF will be talking about grace. Because that's what it's all about. That's what the gospel is. That's what the story, there's one story that's enough, it's because it's about grace. Now that we've defined it, what does grace mean in our lives? What does it look like? And that's where verses 7 through 18 come in. Do you get that? That's where it comes in. And I know you just see a bunch of people's names, but this, these verses show us, they demonstrate the transforming power of grace in real lives. Lives like ours. To see how one story of Jesus' grace him taking my wrongs and me getting his rights on a cross to see how that transforms lives. We get to see how that changes the way that we relate to people. I'm not, I Literally, he has so many powerful stories in here by the names that he rattles off that I could spend a lifetime unpacking each story. And each story is very significant and important. I'm going to look at one. Verse 10, Mark. Okay? 
And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. That seems boring enough, doesn't it? Okay, make sure to host Mark like the dozen other people that I list off in this passage. Great. But do you see that Mark's relationship with Paul isn't boring? And that's why we did all those readings, and that's why it was all scattered, and that's why it was all maybe confusing to some of you. If you remember our reading for Acts chapter 13, Mark ditched Paul and Barnabas in the middle of the missionary journey. He left Paul and Barnabas out to dry. He took off for home, and he did not look back at the bugs. He did not look back at the stormy seas. He did not look back at the angry mobs. He went home to mom and to mom's food and to his bed. That's what he did. We don't know why Mark left, but the discussion in Acts 15 makes Paul, at least, seem like the reason that Mark left was not very legitimate. He didn't leave for a good reason. He was probably scared. He was probably tired. He was probably homesick. He was probably full of doubts. And you got to get this. Mark quit what he thought was the varsity Christian squad. Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, planting churches. And he thought to himself probably, there's no way that God will ever use me again. God's going to be mad at me. God's going to hate my guts. and He's going to stop caring about me. But do you get the kind of God that believes, that lives, that made grace? He's a God who chases after people. Like Mark. Like you and me. When we get scared or discouraged or tired and want to quit, God redoubles his efforts to pursue us. We hide. He seeks. We run. He runs faster after us. And that's just what God did with Mark. And that's exactly what he'll do with you if you believe in him. And even if your belief feels like quitting, he does that for you and for me. Jesus chases after you in your paralyzing stress over your final exams. Jesus chases after you when you love your friends more than Jesus. Jesus chases after you when you feel like cutting or masturbating or eating a whole gallon of ice cream in one sitting. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus chases after you. Jesus chases after you and me when Christianity feels tough and we're scared that everyone in this room knows that we suck in church. Jesus Christ chases after you and me when we think that everyone else but us is a terrible student, a terrible friend, and a terrible Christian. He chases after us even in that judgmental state. And so God rescues and heals Mark, and he tells him, Mark, there's no such thing as junior varsity Christians. If you believe in Jesus, you're on the varsity squad. Even when you leave the mission field to go home to Mama. And Mark goes on to be useful to God in ministry. That's a quote from 2 Timothy 4.11, written by who? Paul. Paul says he's useful in ministry. And really, we only have to look to the New Testament, to a book that Mark wrote about Jesus. The man who fled the mission field and went home to Mama wrote a book of the Bible. The word that stands forever. 
But look, I, I, it's not even done here. Mark's story of running scared into the arms of Jesus, that story is only part of the story. Because Paul, the person wronged by Mark, asked the Colossians to throw Mark a big, fat party. That's what he's saying in verse 10. He's saying, when Mark arrives, throw the house down. Give him the best stuff, the fat calf, the robe, everything that he needs. The same Paul who parted with Barnabas over Mark's inadequacy has this incredible change of heart. Do you see that? The same Paul refuses to count Mark as dead to him. The same Paul refuses to write Paul write Mark off as a loser or a coward. The same Paul returns Mark's failures over and over again with mercy and compassion. That's a sign of grace at work in Paul's life. Because Paul is understanding something very fundamental. That he's always and forever running away from Jesus. And that Jesus is always and forever throwing him welcome back home parties. Do we do this for people in our lives? Are we giving them the benefit of the doubt over and over again? Or are we roasting them over their past mistakes? Are we continuing to recommend those friends who failed us? Are we celebrating the parents, the roommates, the neighbors who apologize? When Pi hears Father Martin tell him that one story is enough for Christians, he has three objections, three accusing questions. Pi says aloud, that a God should put up with adversity, I could understand. But humiliation, death, why would God wish that taint of death, that taint of stench of death, upon himself? Why make a dirty, why make dirty what is beautiful? Why spoil what is perfect? Do you know what Father Martin says? He answers one word, love. Pi goes again, he rants, he says, this son is a god on a, a too human a scale. That's what. His miracles are car trips. His best transportation is a regular donkey. And he died in three hours with moans and gasps and laments. What kind of a god is that? What is there in this god to inspire us? Do you know what Father Martin answers? One word. Love. And finally, Pi, in a final outburst, says this to Father Martin. And this son appears only once, long ago, far away, among an obscure tribe in the backwater of West Asia, on the confines of a long vanished empire. This God is ungenerous and unfair. Who, what could justify such divine stinginess? And Father Martin says, for a final time, love. Do you get that? Love is Jesus taking on humiliation and death for his people. Love is Jesus living a single human life once, long ago, and far away. A God on too human a scale. Love is Jesus meeting us where we're hiding. And bringing us back to a welcome home celebration. Love is is Jesus using his grace and our faith so that we get his rights and he takes our wickedness, our wrongs on a cross. 
The answer to life, the answer about how to live, whether it's praying or speaking or listening or acting, is one word, always and forever. Love. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I pray that you would help us to understand what grace is, what grace looks like, and it looks it looks like in your story, the humiliation, the death, the suffering, the all-too-humanness of Jesus that frustrates us and makes us angry. And I pray that you would help us to turn to ourselves and see our all-too-humanness, not just our limits in the case of Jesus that he takes on, but in the case of our own hearts, our fail- failures. And I pray that you'd help us to see that they're received with love. They're received with understanding, they receive mercy, and they receive the big fat party. God, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem true. It seems too good to be true. It feels like a secret in the dark. But Father, I pray that you'd help us to love your love. In your son's name.